ancient Egypt, known for its rich cultural and mythological heritage, worshipped a vast pantheon of gods and goddesses. Among their deities, there were two fascinating groups that stood out for their mysterious and otherworldly nature, the Ogdoad and the Shining Ones. These divine beings played significant roles in the Egyptian cosmology and were revered for their unique powers and symbolism. In this blog, we will delve into the fascinating world of these ancient Egyptian deities and uncover the secrets surrounding them. The Ogdoad, the Ogdoad, meaning the group of eight, was a primordial and enigmatic group of deities worshipped in the ancient city of Hermopolis. Comprised of four pairs of male and female deities, the Ogdoad represented the chaotic and formless state of the universe before creation. Each pair personified abstract concepts and elements essential for creation and the maintenance of cosmic order. The first pair of the Ogdoad consisted of Nun, the god of the primordial waters, and Naunet, the goddess of chaos. They symbolized the watery abyss from which all life emerged. The second pair comprised He, the god of infinity, and Hawit, the goddess of eternity, embodying the boundless and limitless nature of the universe. The third pair consisted of Kuk, the god of darkness, and Kauket, the goddess of darkness. They represented the primordial darkness that preceded light. Finally, the fourth pair comprised Amun, the god of hidden power, and Amonet, the goddess of invisibility, symbolizing the hidden forces and aspects of creation. Together, the Ogdoad formed a divine balance, representing the intricate interplay between opposing cosmic forces that enabled creation and harmony in the universe. The Shining Ones Another intriguing group of deities in ancient Egyptian mythology were the Shining Ones, also known as the Aku. These deities were associated with the afterlife and were believed to have transcended mortal existence to become luminous and divine beings. The Shining Ones were revered as the spirits of deceased ancestors and were considered intermediaries between the mortal realm and the divine realm. The Shining Ones were often depicted as radiant beings with solar disks or stars adorning their heads, signifying their celestial nature. They were associated with light, knowledge and spiritual enlightenment. These deities were believed to provide guidance, protection and blessings to their living descendants, ensuring the continuity of the family lineage. The concept of the Shining Ones also extended to the pharaohs, who were considered divine rulers and were believed to transform into Aku upon their death. It was believed that these enlightened beings ascended to join the ranks of the gods, becoming part of the eternal cosmic order. The ancient Egyptians' belief system was intricate and multifaceted, with various deities representing different aspects of the cosmos. The Ogdoad and the Shining Ones stand as remarkable examples of the complexity and richness of Egyptian mythology. The Ogdoad symbolized the primordial chaos and the forces that brought about creation and order, while the Shining Ones represented the divine ascension of the deceased and their role as spiritual guides. Both groups of deities played crucial roles in ancient Egyptian cosmology, shedding light on the Egyptians' understanding of the universe and their connection to the divine. Exploring the stories and symbolism of these otherworldly deities provides us with a glimpse into the captivating world of ancient Egyptian spirituality, where gods and goddesses were revered as the embodiment of cosmic forces and the key to understanding the mysteries of existence. The Gods of the Egyptians The Greek historian Herodotus affirms that the Egyptians were beyond measure scrupulous in all matters appertaining to religion. 
He made this statement after personal observation of the care which they displayed in the performance of religious ceremonies, the aim and object of which was to do honour to the gods, and of the obedience which they showed to the behests of the priests who transmitted to them commands which they declared to be, and which were accepted as, authentic revelations of the will of the gods. From how this writer speaks, it is clear that he had no doubt about what he was saying, and that he was recording a conviction that had settled in his mind. He was fully cognizant that the Egyptians worshipped many animals, birds and reptiles, with a seriousness and earnestness that astonished the cultured Greeks. Yet he was not moved to give expression to words of scorn, as was Juvenal, for Herodotus perceived that beneath the acts of apparently foolish and infatuated worship existed a sincerity that betokened a firm and implicit belief that merited the respect of thinking men. It would be wrong to imagine that the Egyptians were the only people of antiquity who were scrupulous beyond measure in religious matters, for we know that the Babylonians, both Sumerian and Semitic, were devoted worshippers of their gods, and that they possessed a very old and complicated system of religion. Still, there is good reason to think that the Egyptians were more scrupulous than their neighbours in religious matters, and that they always bore the character of an extremely religious nation. The evidence of the monuments of the Egyptians proves that from the earliest to the latest period of their history, the observance of religious festivals and the performance of religious duties in connection with the worship of the gods absorbed a very large part of the time and energies of the nation, and if we take into consideration the funeral ceremonies and services commemorative of the dead which were performed by them at the tombs, a casual visitor to Egypt who did not know how to look below the surface might be pardoned for declaring that the Egyptians were a nation of men who were wholly given up to the worship of beasts and the cult of the dead. The Egyptians, however, acted in a perfectly logical manner, for they believed that they were a holy nation and that they were ruled by kings who were themselves gods incarnate. Their earliest kings, they asserted, were actually gods who did not disdain to live upon the earth, to go about and up and down through it, and to mingle with men. Other ancient nations were content to believe that they had been brought into being by the power of their gods operating upon the matter, but the Egyptians believed that they were the issue of the great god who created the universe, and that they were of direct divine origin. When the gods ceased to reign in their proper persons upon earth, they were succeeded by a series of demigods, who were in turn succeeded by the manes, and these were duly followed by kings who had enshrined a divine nature with characteristic attributes. When a king's physical or natural body passed away, the divine aspect of his being, or the spiritual body, returned to its original residence with the gods, and men on earth dutifully worshipped it as a god and alongside the gods. This happy result was partly brought about by the performance of certain ceremonies, which were at first wholly magical, but later partly magical and partly religious, by the recital of appropriate words uttered in the duly prescribed tone and manner, and by the keeping of festivals at the tombs at stated seasons when the appointed offerings were made, and the prayers for the welfare of the dead were said. From the earliest times, the worship of the gods went hand in hand with the deification of dead kings and other royal personages, and the worship of departed monarchs, from some aspects, may be regarded as meritorious as the worship of the gods. From one point of view, Egypt was as much a land of gods as of men, and the inhabitants of the country wherein the gods lived and moved naturally devoted a considerable portion of their time upon earth 
to the worship of divine beings and of their ancestors who had departed to the land of the gods. Regarding religion and all that pertains to it, the Egyptians were a peculiar people of all ages. They exhibited a tenacity of belief and conservatism, distinguishing them from all the other great nations of antiquity. But the Egyptians were not only renowned for their devotion to religious observances, but also for the variety and number of their gods. Animals, birds, fish and reptiles were worshipped by them in all ages, but in addition to these, they adored the great powers of nature, as well as a large number of beings with which they populated the heavens, the air, the earth, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the water. In the earliest times, the pre-dynastic Egyptians, in common with every half-savage people, believed that all the various operations of nature resulted from the actions of beings that were mostly unfriendly to man. The inundation that rose too high and flooded the primitive village, drowning their cattle and destroying their stock of grain, was regarded as the result of the work of an unfriendly and unseen power. And when the river rose just high enough to irrigate the land that had been prepared, they either thought that a friendly power was stronger than that which caused the destroying flu, had kept the hostile power in check, or that the spirit of the river was, on that occasion, pleased with them. They believed in the existence of spirits of the air and in spirits of mountains, streams and trees, and all these had to be propitiated with gifts or cajoled and wheedled into bestowing their favour and protection upon their suppliants. It is very unfortunate that the animals and the spirits of natural objects, as well as the powers of nature, were all grouped together by the Egyptians and were described by the word Netaru, which with considerable inexactness we are obliged to translate as gods. There is no doubt that at a very early period in their pre-dynastic history, the Egyptians distinguished between great and little gods, just as they did between friendly and hostile gods. Still, their poverty of expression or the inflexibility of their language prevented them from making a distinction apparent in writing. Thus, in dynastic times, when a lofty conception of monotheism prevailed among the priesthood, the scribe was obliged to call God and the lowest of the beings supposed to possess some attribute of divinity by one name, that is, Nater. Other nations of antiquity found a way out of the difficulty of grouping all classes of divine beings by one name by inventing a series of orders of angels, each of which they gave names to and assigned various duties in connection with the service of the deity. Thus it is said that God makes the angels his messengers, and that they are furnished with two, three or four pairs of wings, according to their rank and importance. The archangel Gabriel is said to have been seen by Tululaminad the prophet with six hundred pairs of wings. The duties of the angels, according to the Mulamadans, were of various kinds. Thus, nineteen angels are appointed to take charge of hellfire. Eight are set to eleven parts to support God's throne on the day of judgment. Several tear the souls of the wicked. Their bodies with violence and several take the souls of the righteous from their bodies with gentleness and kindness. Two angels are ordered to accompany every man on earth, the one to write down his good actions and the other his evil deeds, and these will appear with him at the day of judgment, the one to lead him before the judge and the other to bear witness either for or against him. Mohammedan theologians declare that the angels are created of a simple substance of light and that they are endowed with life, speech, and reason. They are incapable of sin. They have no carnal desire. They do not propagate their species. 
and they are not moved by the passions of wrath and anger. Their obedience is absolute. Their meat is the celebration of the glory of God. Their drink is proclaiming His holiness. Their conversation is the commemoration of God, and their pleasure is His worship. Curiously enough, some are said to have the form of animals. The four angels, Archangels Michael, Gabriel, Azrael, and Israfel, possess special powers and duties. These four are superior to all the human race, except for the prophets and apostles. But the angelic nature is considered inferior to human nature because all the angels were commanded to worship Adam. The above and many other characteristics might be cited as proof that the angels of the Mohammedans possess much in common with the inferior gods of the Egyptians. And though many of the conceptions of the Arabs on this point were undoubtedly borrowed from the Hebrews and their writings, a great many must have descended to them from their own early ancestors. Closely connected with these Mohammedan theories, though much older, is the system of angels invented by the Syrians. In this, we find the angels divided into nine classes and three orders, upper, middle, and lower. The upper order comprises cherubim, seraphim, and thrones. The middle order comprises lords, powers, and rulers. And the lower order comprises principalities, archangels, and angels. The middle order receives revelations from those above them, and the lower order is the ministers who wait upon created things. Gabriel is the mediator between God and his creation, the highest and most prominent among the angels. The archangels in this system are described as a swift operative motion, which has dominion over every living thing except man, and the angels are a motion that has spiritual knowledge of everything on earth and in heaven. The Syrians, like the Mohammedans, borrowed largely from the writings of the Hebrews, in whose theological system angels played a very prominent role. In the Syrian system, too, the angels possess much in common with the inferior gods of the Egyptians. The inferior gods of the Egyptians were supposed to suffer from many of the defects of mortal beings, and they were even thought to grow old and die. The same ideas about the angels were held by the Mohammedans and Hebrews. According to the former, the angels will perish when heaven, their abode, is made to pass away on the day of judgment. According to the latter, one of the two great classes of angels, that is, those who were created on the fifth day of creation, is mortal. On the other hand, the angels who were created on the second day of creation endure forever, and these may be fitly compared with the unfailing and unvarying powers of nature, which were personified and worshipped by the Egyptians. Of the angels that perish, some spring from fire, some from water, and some from the wind. The angels are grouped into ten classes, that is, the Erelim, the Ishim, the Bene Elohim, the Malachim, the Liashmalim, the Tarshishim, the Shishanim, the Cherubim, the Ophanim, and the Seraphim. Among these were divided all the duties connected with the ordering of the heavens and the earth, and they, according to their position and importance, became the interpreters of the will of the deity. A comparison of the passages in rabbinic literature that describe these and similar matters connected with the angels, spirits, etc., of ancient Hebrew mythology with Egyptian texts shows that both the Egyptians and Jews possessed many ideas in common, and all the evidence goes to prove that the latter borrowed from the former in the earliest period. In comparatively late historical times, the Egyptians introduced into their company of gods a few deities from Western Asia, but these had no effect on modifying the general character of either their religion or worship. 
The subject of comparative Egyptian and Semitic mythology has yet to be worked on thoroughly, not because it would supply us with the original forms of Egyptian myths and legends, but because it would show what modifications such things underwent when adopted by Semitic peoples, or at least by peoples who had Semitic blood in their veins. Some would compare Egyptian and Semitic mythologies on the ground that the Egyptians and Semites were kinsfolk, but it shouldn't be quite clearly understood that this is a pure assumption and is only based on the statements of those who declare that the Egyptian and Semitic languages are akin. Others have again sought to explain the mythology of the Egyptians through appeals to Aryan mythology and to illustrate the meanings of important Egyptian words in religious texts employing Aryan etymologies. Still, the results could be more satisfactory, and they only show the futility of comparing the mythologies of two peoples of different races occupying quite different grades on the ladder of civilization. It cannot be too strongly insisted on that all the oldest gods of Egypt are of Egyptian origin, that the fundamental religious beliefs of the Egyptians are also of Egyptian origin, and that both the gods and the beliefs date from pre-dynastic times and have nothing whatsoever to do with the Semites or Aryans of history. Of the origins of the Egyptians of the Paleolithic and early Neolithic periods, we of course know nothing. Still, it is tolerably certain that the Egyptians of the latter part of the Neolithic period were indigenous to northeast Africa, and that a very large number of the great gods worshipped by the dynastic Egyptians were also worshipped by their predecessors in pre-dynastic times. The conquerors of the Egyptians of the Neolithic period, who, with good reason, have been assumed to have come from the east and to have been akin to the proto-Semites, no doubt brought about certain modifications in the worship of those whom they had vanquished. Still, they could not have succeeded in abolishing the various gods in animal and other forms that were worshipped throughout the length and breadth of the country, for these continued to be venerated until the time of the Ptolemies. We have at present no means of knowing how far the religious beliefs of the conquerors influenced the conquered peoples of Egypt, but viewed in the light of well-ascertained facts, it seems tolerably certain that no great change took place in the views which the indigenous peoples held concerning their gods as the result of the invasion of foreigners, and that if any foreign gods were introduced into the company of indigenous pre-dynastic gods, they were either quickly assimilated to or wholly absorbed by them. Speaking generally, the gods of the Egyptians remained unchanged throughout all the various periods of the history of Egypt, and the minds of the people seem always to have had a tendency towards the maintenance of old forms of worship and the preservation of the ancient texts in which such forms were prescribed and old beliefs were enshrined. The Egyptians never forgot the ancient gods of the country, and it is typical of the spirit of conservatism that they displayed in most things that even in the Roman period, pious folk among them were buried with the same prayers and with the same ceremonies that had been employed at the burial of Egyptians nearly 5,000 years before. The Egyptian of the Roman period, like the Egyptian of the early empire, was content to think that his body would be received in the tomb by the jackal-headed Anubis, that the organs of his corruptible body would be presided over and guarded by animal-headed gods, that the reading of the pointer of the great scales, wherein his heart was weighed, would be made known by an ape to the ibis-headed scribe of the gods, whom we know by the name of Thoth, and that the beatified dead would be introduced to the god Osiris by a hawk-headed god called Horus, son of Isis, who in many respects was the counterpart of the god Eferu-ur, the oldest of all the gods of Egypt, 
whose type and symbol was the hawk. From first to last, the indigenous Egyptian paid little heed to the events outside his own country, and neither conquest nor invasion by foreign nations affected his personal beliefs. He continued to cultivate his land diligently, and he worshipped the gods of his ancestors blindly. Like them, he spared no pains in making preparations for the preservation of his mummified body, and the heaven that he hoped to attain was fashioned according to old ideas of a fertile homestead, well stocked with cattle, where he would enjoy the company of his parents and be able to worship the local gods whom he had adored upon the earth. The priestly and upper classes certainly held views on these subjects that differed from those of the husbandman, but it is a significant fact that it was not the religion and mythology of the dynastic Egyptians. Still, that of the indigenous pre-dynastic Egyptian, with his animal gods and fantastic and half-savage beliefs, which strongly coloured the religion of the country in all periods of her history, and gave to her the characteristics that were regarded with astonishment and wonder by all the peoples who came in contact with the Egyptians. In the earliest stages of their existence, the pre-dynastic Egyptians, like most savage and semi-savage peoples, believed that the sea, the earth, the air and the sky were filled to overflowing with spirits, some of whom were engaged in carrying on the works of nature and others in aiding or obstructing man in the course of his existence upon earth. They attributed whatever happened in nature to the operations of many spiritual beings whose lives were identified with the lives of the great natural elements and whose existence terminated with the destruction of the objects they were supposed to animate. Although invisible to mental eyes, such spirits were very real creatures in their minds, and to them they attributed all the passions that belonged to man and all his faculties and powers. Everything in nature was inhabited by a spirit, and it was thought possible to endow a representation, model or figure of any object with a spirit or soul, provided a name was given to it. This spirit or soul lived in the drawing or figure until the object which it animated was broken or destroyed. The objects, both natural and artificial that we consider to be inanimate, were regarded by the pre-dynastic Egyptians as animate, and in many respects they were thought to resemble man himself. The spirits who infested every part of the visible world were countless in form, and they differed from each other in respect of power. The spirit that caused the inundation of the Nile was greater than the one that lived in a canal. The spirit that made the sunshine was more powerful than the one that governed the moon. And the spirit of a great tree was mightier than the one that animated an ear of corn or a blade of grass. The difference between the supposed powers of such spirits must have been distinguished at a very early period, and the half-savage inhabitants of Egypt must at the same time have made a sharp distinction between those whose operations were beneficial to them and those whose actions brought upon them injury, loss, or death. It is easy to see how they might imagine that certain great natural objects were under the dominion of spirits capable of feeling wrath or displeasure and manifesting it to man. Thus, the spirit of the Nile would be regarded as beneficent and friendly when the waters of the river rose sufficiently during the period of the inundation to ensure an abundant crop throughout the land, but not when their rise was excessive when they drowned the cattle and washed away the people's houses, whether made of wattles or mud, or when they rose insufficiently and caused want and famine, the spirit of the Nile would be considered unfriendly and evil to man. An ample and sufficient inundation was regarded as a sign that the spirit of the Nile was not dissatisfied with man, 
but a destructive flood was a sure token of displeasure. The same feeling exists to this day in Egypt among the peasant farmers, for several natives told me in 1899, the year of the lowest rise of the Nile of the 19th century, that Allah was angry with them and would not let the water come, and one man added that in all his life he had never before known Allah to be so angry with them. The spirits, which were always hostile or unfriendly towards man, and were regarded by the Egyptians as evil spirits, were identified with certain animals and reptiles, and traditions of some of these have been preserved until the latest period of dynastic history. Apep, the serpent devil of mist, darkness, storm and night, of whom more will be said later on, and his friends, the children of rebellion, were not the result of the imagination of the Egyptians in historical times, but their existence dates from the period when Egypt was overrun by mighty beasts, huge serpents, and noxious reptiles of all kinds. The great serpent of Egyptian mythology, which was indeed a formidable opponent of the sun god, had its prototype in some monster serpent on earth, of which tradition had preserved a record, and that this is no mere theory is proved by the fact that the remains of a serpent, which must have been of enormous size, have recently been found in the Fayum. The vertebrae are said to indicate that the creature to which they belonged was longer than the largest python known. The allies of the great serpent devil Apep were as hostile to man as was their master to the sun god, and they were regarded with terror by the minds of those who had evolved them. On the other hand, there were several spirits whose actions were friendly and beneficial to man, and some of these were supposed to battle on his behalf against the evil spirits. Thus, at a very early period, the pre-dynastic Egyptian must have conceived the existence of a great company of spirits whose goodwill, or at all events whose inaction, could only be obtained by bribes, that is, offerings and cajolery and flattery, and of a second large company whose beneficent deeds to the man he was wont to acknowledge and whose powerful help he was anxious to draw towards himself, and of a third company who were supposed to be occupied solely with making the sun, moon and stars to shine, and the rivers and streams to flow, and the clouds to form and the rain to fall, and who, in fact, was always engaged in carrying out diligently the workings and evolutions of all natural things, both small and great. The spirits to whom in pre-dynastic times the Egyptians ascribed a nature malicious or unfriendly towards man, and who were regarded much as modern nations, have regarded goblins, hobgoblins, gnomes, trolls, elves, etc., developed in dynastic times into a corporate society, with aims and intentions and act wholly evil, and with a government that was devised by the greatest and most evil of their number. In the process of time, the spirits of evil men and women were added, and the prototype of hell was formed by assuming the existence of a place where evil spirits and their still more evil chiefs lived together. By the same process of imagination, beneficent and friendly spirits were grouped together in one abode, under the direction of rulers who were well disposed towards men, and this idea became the nucleus of the later conception of the heaven, to which the souls of good men and women were supposed by the Egyptian to depart after he had developed sufficiently to conceive the doctrine of immortality. The chiefs of evil spirits subsequently became the powerful devils of historic times, and the rulers of the company of beneficent and good spirits became the gods, the spirits of the third company, that is, the spirits of the powers of nature, became the great cosmic gods of the dynastic Egyptians. The cult of this last class of spirits 
or gods, differed in many ways from that of the spirits or gods who were supposed to be concerned entirely with the welfare of man, and in dynastic times there are abundant proofs of this in religious texts and compositions. In the hymns to the sun god, under whatever name he is worshipped, we find that the greatest wonder is expressed at his majesty and glory, and that he is apostrophized in terms that show forth the awe and fear of his devout adorer. His triumphant passage across the sky is described, the unfailing regularity of his rising and setting is mentioned, reference is made to the vast distance over which he passes in a moment, glory is duly ascribed to him for the great works which he performs in nature, and full recognition is given to him as the creator of men and animals, of birds and fish, of trees and plants, of reptiles, and of all created things. The praise of the God is full and sufficient, yet it is always that of a finite being, who appears to be overwhelmed at the thought of the power and might of an apparently infinite being. The petitions lack the personal appeal we find in the Egyptians' prayers to the man-god Osiris, and show that he regarded the two gods from entirely different points of view. It is impossible to say how early this distinction between the functions of the two gods was made, but it is certain that it is contemporaneous with the beginnings of dynastic history, and observed until very late. The element of magic, the oldest and most persistent characteristic of the worship of the gods and the Egyptian religion, generally belongs to the period before this distinction was made. It dates from when man thought that the good and evil spirits were not greatly different from himself and could be propitiated with gifts, controlled utilizing words of power and the performance of ceremonies, and moved to action by hymns and addresses. This belief was present in the minds of the Egyptians in all ages of their history, and it exists in a modified form among the Egyptians today. Indeed, they proclaim vehemently that there is no God but God, that Muhammad is his prophet, and that God's power is infinite and absolute. But they take care to guard themselves and their children from the evil eye, and from the assaults of malicious and evil spirits, using amulets of all kinds as zealously now as their ancestors did in the days before the existence of God, who is one was conceived. The caravan men protect their camels from the evil eye of the spirits of the desert by fastening bright-coloured beads between the eyes of their beasts and using long fringes that hang from their ma, Elijah, or saddles. Despite their firm belief in the infinite power of God, they select an auspicious day on which to set out on a journey, and they never attempt to pass certain isolated caves, ravines, or mountains in the night-time. All the members of the great family of the jinn are to them as real today as their equivalents were to the ancient Egyptians, and from the descriptions of desert spirits that are given by those who have been fortunate enough to see them, it is clear that traditions of the form and appearance of ancient Egyptian fiends and evil spirits have been unconsciously preserved until the present day. The modern Egyptians call them by Arabic names, but their descriptions agree with those that might be made of certain genii that appear in ancient Egyptian mythological works treating the underworld and its inhabitants. The peoples of eastern Sudan, who are also Mohammedans, have inherited many ideas and beliefs from the ancient Egyptians, and this is not to be wondered at when we remember that the civilization of Nubia from the beginning of the 18th dynasty to the end of the 26th, that is, from about B.C. 1550 to about B.C. 550, was nothing but a slavish copy of that of Egypt. A stay of some months in the village at the foot of Jebel Barkal, which marks the site of a part of the old Nubian city of Napata, convinced me of this fact, 
and visits to other places in eastern Sudan proved that these ideas and beliefs were widespread. The hills and deserts are, according to native belief, peopled with spirits, which are chiefly of a disposition unfriendly to man, and they are supposed to have the power of entering both human beings and animals almost at pleasure. Palm trees die or become unfruitful, cattle fall sick through the operations of evil spirits, and any misfortune that comes upon the community or the individual is referred to the same cause. The pyramids, which they call trail, on the hill, are viewed with almost childish fear by the natives, who, curiously enough, speak of the royal personages buried therein as Allah, or gods, and none of them, if it can possibly be avoided, will go up after sundown into the mountain, as they call the sandstone ridge on which they are built. Tombs and cemeteries are carefully avoided at night as a matter of course, but to approach the pyramids at night is regarded as a willful act that is sure to bring down upon the visitor the wrath of the spirits of the kings, who have by some means acquired a divine character in the eyes of the natives. When I opened one of the pyramids at Jebel Barkal in 1897, Mulhamad Wad Ibrahim, the sheikh of the village, tried to keep the workers at work as long as daylight lasted. Still, after this had been done for two or three evenings, several of the wives of the men appeared and carried off their husbands, fearing they should either be bewitched or suffer some penalty for intrusion in that place at the time when, in popular opinion, the spirits of the dead came forth to enjoy the cool of the evening. The same idea prevailed further south among the people who lived on the river near the pyramids of Baal Rawia, which marked the site of the royal necropolis of the ancient city of Berua, or Marua, that is, Meroe. The local sheikh was appointed to go with me and help in taking measurements of some of the pyramids at this place, but when we were about half a mile from them, he dismounted and said he could go no further because he was afraid of the spirits of the gods, including Allah, who was buried there. After much persuasion, he consented to accompany me, but nothing would induce him to let the donkeys go to the pyramids. Having hobbled them and tied them to a large stone, he came on but seated himself on the ground at the northern end of the main group of pyramids, and nothing would persuade him to move about among the ruins. The natives of Jebel Barkal viewed the work of excavation with great disfavor from the very beginning, and their negative opinion was confirmed by the appearance at the pyramids of great numbers of wasps, which, they declared, were larger than any that they had seen before. They were convinced that they were evil spirits who had taken the form of wasps and that evil was coming upon their village. It could have been more useful to explain to them that the wasps only came there to drink from the water skins, which were kept full and hung on pegs driven into the masonry for the use of the workers. When a harmless snake, about eight feet long, which had also crawled there to drink, was killed one morning by the men, their fears of impending evil were confirmed, for they were certain that the spirit of a king had been killed, and they expected that vengeance would be taken upon them by the divine spirits of his companions. About halfway up Jebel Barkal, there lived four large hawks, which always seemed to be following any person who ascended the mountain, but yet never came very near. These were always regarded by the natives as the embodied spirits of the gods, whose figures are still main sculptured and painted on the walls of the rock-hewn sanctuary at the foot of the hill, and I never heard of any attempt being made to shoot or snare them by the people of the villages of Barkal, Shiba, or Marawi. The inhabitants could not know that the hawk, was probably the first living creature worshipped in the Nile Valley, 
and therefore the respect they paid to the hawks must have been due to a tradition handed down to them through countless generations from a past age. Their connecting the hawks with the figures of the gods sculptured in the sanctuary of Amen-Ra is worthy of note, for it shows that they thought along the same lines as their ancestors on such matters. Concerning amulets, the Sudanese man is as superstitious as were ancestors thousands of years ago, and he still believes that stones of certain colours possess magical properties, especially when inscribed with certain symbols of the meaning of which he has no knowledge, but which are due, he says, to the presence of spirits in them. Women and children, especially female children, protect many parts of their bodies with strings of beads made of magical stones, and sometimes with plaques of metal or stone, which are cut into various shapes and ornamented with signs of magical power. The positions of such plaques on the body are frequently identical with those whereon the dynastic Egyptians laid amulets on the dead, and if we could learn from the Sudani folk the reasons which prompt them to make use of such things, we should probably find that the beliefs which underlie the customs are also identical. The above facts concerning the Sudani belief in spirits might be greatly multiplied, and they are not so remotely connected with the beliefs of the dynastic and even pre-dynastic Egyptians as may appear to be the case at first sight. The writer believes that a large amount of information of a similar kind awaits the investigator, who will devote the necessary time to living in some of the out-of-the-way villages of the black, not Negro, peoples who dwell on the eastern bank of the Nile and of the Blue Nile. In many isolated places in southern Nubia and eastern Sudan, there are trees that men regard with reverence, but this may be the result of contact with the natives of Central Africa, where people pray to trees on certain occasions, believing that the spirits that are supposed to dwell in them can bestow gifts upon those whom they regard with favour and ensure safety both to themselves and their animals when travelling. Still further to the south, certain animals, for example, the Cynocephalus ape, which plays such a prominent part in Egyptian dynastic mythology, are supposed to be inhabited by divine spirits and possess extraordinary powers of intelligence. The various kinds of scarabai, or beetles, are thought to be animated by spirits, which the natives connect with the sun. In the former days, the dead bodies of these insects were often eaten by women who wished to become mothers of large families, and to this day, parts of them are cooked, treated with oil, and made into medicines to cure sore eyes, etc. The dynastic Egyptians believed that the scarab was connected with the sun god Ra, and in religious texts of all periods, it is said that the beetle occupied a place in the boat of this god. We have already seen that the dynastic Egyptians and their predecessors conceived of the existence of spirits hostile towards man, of spirits beneficent towards man, and of spirits wholly occupied with carrying out the various operations of nature, and we must now consider the manner and forms in which they became visible to man. The commonest form in which a spirit was believed to make itself visible to man was that of some beast, bird, fish, or reptile, and at a very early period, adoration in one form or another of the so-called inferior animals was well-nigh universal in Egypt. When this worship began, animals, as well as inanimate objects, were not considered by the inhabitants of the Nile Valley to be greatly removed from themselves in intelligence. The primitive man saw nothing ridiculous in attributing speech to inanimate objects and animals, which were supposed to think, reason, and act like human beings, and the religious literature of many of the most ancient nations contains numerous proofs of this fact. 
among the baked clay tablets found in the ruins of the Royal Library of Nineveh, which contained copies of hundreds of documents preserved in the temples of the most ancient cities of Babylonia, were fragments of a dialogue between a horse and an ox, which is now known as the fable of the horse and the ox, and it is tolerably certain that this dialogue did not originate in the reign of Ashurbanipal, B.C. 668-626. However, the tablet it was written on is at least a century old. Again, in the creation legend, the dragon monster Tiamat, the representative of the powers of evil and darkness, is made to conspire against the gods and create a serpent brood to effectively battle them. Other instances might be quoted to show that the Babylonians and Assyrians attributed reason, passion and language to the animals. From the Bible, we learn that the Hebrews held the same views as their relatives on this matter. According to Genesis the third, one and subsequent verses, the serpent's speech deceived and seduced Eve, causing her to disobey the Lord's command. In Numbers 22, 28, the share of Balaam remonstrated with her master and asked him why he had struck her three times. We may note in passing that this animal is said to have been able to see the angel of the Lord standing in the way while her master could not. We are forcibly reminded of the belief that was current among Jews and Mohammedans to the effect that dogs howled before death because they were able to see the angel of death going about on his mission, to say nothing of our own superstition to the same effect, which, however, we seem to have derived not from the East, but from cognate Northern European nations. We see also from the Book of Judges that speech and reason were sometimes attributed to objects which we regard as inanimate, for we read that the trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them, and they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. When the olive tree refused, they went to the fig tree with the same request. And when the fig tree refused, they went to the vine, which refused to leave its wine, which cheered God and man. On this they applied to the bramble, which placed the choice of coming and putting their trust in its shadow, or being burnt by the fire that should come forth from out of itself. In connection with this idea may perhaps be mentioned the incident recorded in Numbers 21, 17, wherein we are told that the princes and nobles dug a well with their staves by the direction of the lawgiver, and that the children of Israel sang this song, Spring up, zero well, sing ye unto it. Many other examples might be quoted from Hebrew literature to show that animals and inanimate objects were, on certain occasions, regarded as beings with thinking and reasoning powers similar to men. Among the Egyptians, animals thought, reasoned and spoke as a matter of course, and their literature is full of indications that they believed them to be moved by motives and passions similar to those of human beings. A typical example may be quoted from the instance of the cow in the tale of the two brothers, who tells her herd that his elder brother is standing behind the door of the buyer with his dagger in his hand, waiting to slay him. The young man, seeing the feet of his brother under the door, took flight, and so saved his life. Here we have another proof that animals were sometimes credited with superhuman intelligence and discernment, since but for the warning of the cow, who had perceived what her master had failed to notice, the herd would have been slain as soon as he entered the byre. Here, too, must be noted the very important part, which is played in the judgment scene in the Book of the Dead by animals. In the story of the shipwreck, we are told about a huge serpent thirty cubits long, with a beard two cubits long, which made a long speech to the unfortunate man who was wrecked on the island wherein it lived. In the papyri of the 28th dynasty, 
we have representations of the weighing of the heart of the deceased in the great balance which takes place in the presence of the great company of the gods who act as judges and who pass the sentence of doom that must be ratified by Osiris according to the report of the god Thoth who acts as scribe and secretary to the gods. The Egyptian hoped that his heart would exactly counterbalance the feather, symbolic of Mart or the law, and neither wished nor expected it to outweigh it, for he detested performing works of supererogation. The act of weighing was carefully watched by Anubis, the god of the dead, whose duty was to cast to the eater of the dead the hearts that failed to balance the feather exactly by the guardian angel of the deceased, on behalf of the deceased, and by a dog-headed ape, who was seated on the top of the pillar, and who supported himself upon the bracket on which was balanced the beam of the great scales. This ape was the associate and companion of the god Thoth, and he was supposed to be skilled in the art of computation, in the science of numbers, and in the measurement of time. His duty at the weighing of the heart was to scrutinize the pointer of the scales, and having made sure that the beam of the scales was exactly level, that is, that the heart and the feather exactly counterbalanced each other, to report the fact to Thoth, so that he in turn might make his report to the gods on the case under consideration. The ape seated on the pillar of the scales belongs to a species now only found in Sudan, but might have been found all over Egypt in late pre-dynastic or early dynastic times. The dog-headed ape is very clever, and even in modern times is regarded with much respect by the natives, who believe that its intelligence is of the highest order and that its cunning is far superior to that of man. The high esteem in which it was held by the ancient Egyptians is proved by the fact that the god Thoth was held to be incarnate in him and by the important functions that he performed in their mythology. It will also be remembered that in the vignette that represents the sunrise in the Book of the Dead, a company of six or seven dog-headed apes is depicted in the act of adoring the god of the day as he rises on the eastern horizon of heaven. They stand on their hind legs, and their forepaws are raised in adoration, and they are supposed to be singing hymns to the sun god. In a text that describes this scene, these apes are said to be the spirits of the dawn, who sing hymns of praise to the sun god whilst he is rising, and who transform themselves into apes as soon as he has risen. It is a well-known fact in natural history that the apes and monkeys in the forests of Africa and other countries chatter noisily at dawn, and it is clear that the matutinal cries of these animals suggested their connection with the spirits of dawn. It is not stated in the text whether the spirits of the dawn were created each day afresh, or whether the monkeys transformed themselves into spirits daily, and were able to greet the rising sun each morning. We may, however, connect the idea concerning them with that which is met with in an ancient Hebrew description of the angels of Hebrew mythology, for one group of angels of service from the river of fire were supposed to be created daily to sing one hymn to God Almighty and then to come to an end. Passing now to the consideration of the worship of animals by the Egyptians of the pre-dynastic and dynastic periods, we have to endeavour to find the reasons that induced the early inhabitants of the Nile Valley to pay adoration to birds, beasts, fish and other creatures of the animal kingdom. A careful examination of the facts now available shows that in Egypt, primitive man must have worshipped animals in the first instance because they possessed strength, power and cunning greater than his own, or because they were endowed with some quality that enabled them to do him bodily harm or to cause his death. 
the fundamental mental motive in man for worshipping animals was fear. When man first took up his abode in Egypt, the physical conditions of the country must have resembled those of some parts of Central Africa at the present time, and the whole country was probably covered with forests and the ground obscured by dense undergrowth. In the forests, great numbers of elephants and other large beasts must have lived, and the undergrowth formed a home for huge serpents of various species and for hosts of deadly reptiles of different kinds, and the river was filled with great crocodiles similar in length and bulk to those that have been seen in recent years in the Blue Nile and in the rivers further to the south. We cannot know when the elephant was exterminated in Egypt, but it was probably long before dynastic times because he found no place in Egyptian mythology. The ivory objects that have been found in pre-dynastic graves prove that this substance was prized by the primitive Egyptians and that it was, comparatively, largely used by them for making personal ornaments and other small objects. But whether they imported elephant tusks from Sudan or obtained them from animals that they hunted and killed in some part of Egypt cannot be said. On the top of one of the standard, which is painted on pre-dynastic vases, we find the figure of an elephant, a fact that seems to show that this animal was the symbol of the family of the man who made the vase on which it is found, or of his country, or of the tutelary deity, that is, the god of his town or tribe. On the other hand, it is quite clear from several passages in the texts that the walls of the chambers and corridors of the pyramid tombs of Unas and Teta and other kings of the in the early empire, it is inscribed that Egypt was infested with venomous snakes and noxious reptiles of various kinds when the original forms of those passages were written, and that they were sufficiently formidable and numerous to cause the living grave anxiety about the safety of the bodies of their dead. Thus, in the text of Unas, a king of the fifth dynasty, we find a series of short magical formulae, many of which are directed against serpents and fierce animals. All are couched in terms that prove that they must have been composed long before they were inscribed on the walls inside this king's pyramid. At the time when these formulae were composed, each of these serpents was probably the type of a class of venomous snakes, and their names no doubt described their physical characteristics and their methods of attack. The abject fear of the Egyptians for the serpent has been constant in all generations. The texts of the latest as well as those of the earliest period contain numerous prayers intended to deliver the deceased from the serpents that are in the underworld, which live upon the bodies of men and women and consume their blood. Long after Egypt was cleared of snakes, and when the country was in the condition in which we now know it, the tradition remained that a mighty serpent, some thirty cubits, that is, about fifty feet long, lived on the top of Bakau, the mountain of the sunrise, and his name was Amihemph, that is, dweller in his flame. The worship of the serpent in Egypt is of great antiquity, and shrines to certain members of the species must have existed at a very early date. In pre-dynastic times, the Uraeus was held in great veneration, and the great centre of its worship was in the Delta, at a place that the Egyptians in dynastic times called Perwachit, and the Greeks Buto. During the period when the Uraeus was being worshipped in Lower Egypt, the vulture was the chief object of adoration in Upper Egypt, its principal sanctuary being situated in the city, which the Egyptians called Nekebet, and the Greeks Ilethiaspolis. The Uraeus goddess was called Uachit, or Uachit, and the vulture goddess Nekebet, or Nekebit, 
and the cities which were the centers of their worship became so important, probably in consequence of this worship, that in the early dynastic period we find it customary for kings, when they wished to proclaim their sovereignty over all Egypt, to give themselves the title Lord of the Shrines of the Vulture and Uraeus. The equivalents of these signs are found on the now famous plaque inscribed with the name and titles of Alkia, a king who is often, but without sufficient reason, assumed to be identical with Mena or Menes, and thus it is clear that the cities of Nechabet and Peruachit were important religious and administrative centers in pre-dynastic times. Other wild animals that were worshipped by the Egyptians about the same period were the lion, the lynx, which they called after, the hippopotamus and the quadruped, which became the symbol of the god-set. Among amphibious creatures, the crocodile and the turtle were the most important. Among domestic animals, the bull and the cow were the principal objects of worship, and proof is forthcoming that they were regarded as deities in pre-dynastic times. The great strength of the bull and his almost irresistible attack in fighting and headlong rush excited the fear and admiration of primitive man, and his fecundating powers made him, at a very early period, the type of the generative principle in nature. For thousands of years the kings of Egypt delighted to call themselves mighty bulls, and the importance which they attached to this title is evinced by the fact that many of them inscribed it upon their search, or cognizance, which displayed their name as the descendant of Horus. In fact, it formed their Horus name. The figure of a bull is found sculptured upon some of the Green Sea, the objects which date from the pre-dynastic period and which have been erroneously called pallets, and a flint model of the head and horns of the cow, which in later times became the animal symbolic of the goddess Hathor, was found in a pre-dynastic grave. All these objects are in the British Museum. The warrior kings of the 28th and 29th dynasties were pleased when the court scribes related in commemorative inscriptions how their lords raged and roared like lions as they mounted their chariots and set out to crush the foolish enemy who had the temerity to defy them. Still, they preferred to be likened to the mighty bull who trampled opposition beneath his hooves and gored and destroyed with his horns that his hooves had failed to annihilate. Out of the reverence that was paid to the bull in pre-dynastic times grew the worship of two special bulls, Ilap and Meryur, whose names the Greeks modified into Apis and Minivis, the sacred animals of the ancient cities of Memphis and Heliopolis, respectively. The worship of Apis is at least as old as the beginning of the dynastic period, and we know that the cult of this bull continued in Memphis until the close of the rule of the Ptolemies. In some way, the beliefs concerning Apis related to those which the Egyptians held concerning Osiris, the god and judge of the dead, who is called in the bull of the dead the bull of Amentet, that is, the bull of the underworld. And in the Ptolemaic period, the two gods were merged into one and formed the god Serapis, to whom were ascribed the attributes of the Egyptian and Greek gods of the underworld. It now seems generally admitted by ethnologists that three main causes have induced men to worship animals, that is, worshipping them as animals, the dwelling places of gods, or as representatives of tribal ancestors. There is no reason whatsoever for doubting that in Neolithic times the primitive Egyptians worshipped animals as animals, and as nothing more. The belief that animals were the abodes of spirits or deities grew up in their minds later, and it was this that induced them to mummify the dead bodies of birds, beasts, fish, etc.
in which they thought deities to have been incarnate. We have no means of knowing exactly when this belief arose, but it is certainly as old as the time when the Apis bull began to be worshipped, and when the Egyptians began to keep the ram and other animals, birds, reptiles and fish in sanctuaries, and to worship them as deities incarnate. In connection with it, we must notice that, in the case of the Apis bull and the ram of Mendes, the god Apis did not take up his abode in every bull, and that the soul of Osiris, which was supposed to dwell in the ram of Mendes, did not make his habitation in every ram. The Apis bull, like the ram of Mendes, had to be sought diligently, and no bull or ram was made the object of veneration in the sanctuaries of Memphis or Mendes, unless he possessed the characteristic marks by which the priests recognized him. The ordinary bulls and rams of the species to which the Apis bull and the ram of Mendes belonged were not regarded in the same light as the animals that, by the marks upon them, proclaimed themselves to be the creatures to whom worship should be offered. They were, of course, sacrificed in the performance of funeral ceremonies and killed and eaten as food by the people, even though some of the deity may have been incarnate in them. When the Apis bull, or the ram of Mendes, died, the deity who had been incarnate in it transferred himself to another animal, and therefore did not leave the earth. Whether the Egyptians worshipped animals as representations of tribal ancestors or totems has given rise to much discussion, and this is not to be wondered at, for the subject is one of difficulty. We know that many of the standards representing the gnomes of Egypt are distinguished by figures of birds and animals, for example the hawk, the bull, the hare, etc. But it is unclear whether these are intended to represent totems or not. The gnome standard of dynastic times was certainly derived from the standards that the pre-dynastic Egyptians set up in their boats or caused to be carried in ceremonial processions or during the performance of public functions, and there is no reason for doubting that, substantially, the same ideas and beliefs underlie the use of both classes of standards. The animal or bird standing on the top of a gnome perch or standard is not intended as a fetish or a representation of a tribal ancestor. Still, for a creature regarded as the deity, under whose protection the people of a certain tract of territory were placed, we may assume that within the limits of that territory it was unlawful to injure or kill such an animal or bird. Thus, in the gnome of the black bull, a black bull of a certain kind would be regarded as a sacred animal, and in pre-dynastic times worship would certainly be offered to it as a god. Similarly, in the gnome of the hare, the hare would be worshipped, and in the gnome of the hawk, the hawk would be worshipped. Outside these gnomes, however, the bull, the hare and the hawk might be, and probably were, killed and eaten for food, and from this point of view, the sacred creatures of the Egyptians may be thought to have something in common with the totems, or deified representatives of tribal ancestors, and with the fetishes of the tribes of nations that are on the lowest levels of civilization. In connection with this matter, it is customary to quote the statements of Greek and Roman writers, many of whom scoff at the religion of the Egyptians because it included the worship of animals and charged the nation with fatuity because the animals, etc., which were worshipped and preserved with all care in some places, were killed and eaten in others. The evidence of such writers cannot be regarded as wholly trustworthy, first because they did not take the trouble to understand the Egyptians' views about sacred animals, and second, because they were not able to obtain trustworthy information. His other statements about the religion of the Egyptians need to be more trustworthy. 
There needs to be more ancient Egyptian religious literature to trace the history of religion in all periods of dynastic history. Still less are we able to follow it back in the pre-dynastic period, because because of that time, we have no literature at all. Such monuments and texts as we have, however, serve to show that the Egyptians first worshipped animals as animals, and nothing more, and later as the habitations of divine spirits or gods. But there is no reason for thinking that the animal worship of the Egyptians was descended from a system of totems or fetishes, as Mr. F. Malenon believed. It has been assumed by some ethnologists that many primitive peoples have been accused of naming individuals after animals, and that such animal names have, in certain cases, become tribe names. These may have become family surnames, and at length the myths may have grown up, about them in which it is declared that the families concerned were actually descended from the animals in question as ancestors, whence might arise many other legends of strange adventures and heroic deeds of ancestors to be attributed to the quasi-human animals whose names they bore. At the same time, popular mystification between the great ancestor and the creature whose name he held and handed down to his race might lead to veneration for the creature itself, and thence to full animal worship. This theory may explain certain facts connected with the animal worship of several savage or half-savage tribes in some parts of the world, but it cannot, in the writer's opinion, be regarded as affording an explanation of the animal worship of the Egyptians. In dynastic times, kings were, it is true, worshipped as gods, and divine honours were paid to their statues, but the reason for this was that the king was believed to be the seed of the god Horus, the oldest of all the gods of Egypt. There is a reason for believing that to certain men who were famous for their knowledge, or for some great works which they had accomplished, divine honours were paid. But neither these nor the kings were held to be gods who were worshipped throughout the land, as were the well-known or natural gods of the country. In short, the worship that was paid to kings after their deaths, or to ordinary men, who were sometimes deified, was quite different from that paid to the gods of the country, whether they were in animal or human form, or whether they represented the spirits that concerned themselves with the welfare of men, or those that occupied themselves with the direction of the operations of nature. We know from the Nomen lists that the fifth gnome of Lower Egypt, which was called Sapi by the Egyptians and Saits by the Greeks, had the city Saut or Sais for its capital, and the great deity of this city was the goddess Net or Neith. The dynastic pictures of this goddess represent her as a goddess who holds two arrows and a bow. She sometimes wears the crown of the north, which is the sign for her name, or two crossed arrows. In fact, such pictures prove beyond a doubt that Nit, the goddess of Sais, was the goddess of the chase par excellence. That this goddess was worshipped in the earliest dynastic period is certain, for we find that her name forms part of the name of Nitl-Etep, who seems to have been the daughter of King Smar, and who was probably the wife of Al, U-1, and also part of that of the early dynastic king Mernit. There is no reason to doubt that the dynastic sign is the equivalent of the pre-dynastic sign, and as the former is known to represent the crossed arrows and shield of the hunting goddess of Sais, we are justified in believing that its pre-dynastic equivalent was intended to be a picture of the same objects and to be symbolic of the same goddess. We have already mentioned the pre-dynastic standard surmounted by the figure of an elephant, which was undoubted, intended to represent a god. Thus, it is clear that in pre-dynastic and dynastic times, 
the Egyptians symbolized gods using animals and objects connected with their worship or their supposed occupations. In dynastic women lists, we have for the name of Matenu, a knife. For the gnome of Ten, a pair of horns surmounted by a plumed disc. For the gnome of Uas, or Us, a scepter. And for the gnome of Sesheshet, a sistrum rurte. The first, third and fourth of this group of examples are objects connected with the worship of the gods they symbolize, and the second is probably intended to be the headdress of the god of the gnome it symbolizes. At this period of the world's history, it is impossible to fathom the reasons that led men to select such objects as the symbols of their gods. We can only accept the view that they were the product of some indigenous, dominant people who succeeded in establishing their religious customs so strongly in Egypt that they survived all political commotions, changes and foreign invasions, and flourished in the country until the third century of our era at least. The cult of Neet, or Neith, must have been very general in Egypt, although in dynastic times the chief seat thereof was at Sais in the Delta, and we know that devotees of the goddess lived as far south as Najada, a few miles to the north of Thebes, for several objects inscribed with the name of Queen Nit-Hetep have been found in a grave at that place. Nothing is known about the early worship of the goddess, but it is most probable that she was adored as a great hunting spirit, as were spirits of like character by primitive peoples in other parts of the world. The crossed arrows and shield indicate that she was a hunting spirit in the earliest times, but a picture of the dynastic period depicts her with two crocodiles, one sucking one at each breast, and thus she appears in later times to have had power over the river ascribed to her. It has already been said that the primitive Egyptians, though believing that their gods possessed powers superior to their own, regarded them as beings who were liable to grow old and die, and who were moved to love and to hate, and to take pleasure in meat and drink like a man. They were even supposed to intermarry with human beings, and to have the power of begetting offspring like the sons of God, as recorded in the book of Genesis. These ideas were common in all periods of Egyptian history, and the Egyptians never wholly freed themselves from them. There is, in fact, abundant proof that even in the times when monotheism had developed to a remarkable degree, they clung to them with surprising tenacity. The religious texts contain numerous references to them, and beliefs conceived by the Egyptians in their lowest states of civilization are mingled with those that reveal the existence of high spiritual conceptions. The great storehouse of religious thought is the Book of the Dead. In one of the earliest reflections on that remarkable work, we may examine its various layers with good results. These preserved passages shed light on the views held concerning the gods, the powers they possessed, and the place where they dwelt in company with the beatified dead. One of the most instructive of these passages for our purpose forms one of the texts inscribed on the walls and corridors of the chambers in the pyramid tombs of Unas, a king of the fifth dynasty, and of Teta, a king of the sixth dynasty. The paragraphs in general of the great Heliopolitan recension deal, as we should expect, with the offerings that were to be made at stated intervals in the little chapels attached to the pyramids, and many were devoted to the object of removing enemies of every kind from the paths of the king in the underworld. Others contain hymns and short prayers for his welfare, magical formulae, and incantations. A few describe the great power the beatified king enjoys in the world beyond the grave, and of course declare that the king is as great a lord in heaven as he was upon earth. The passage in question from the Pyramid of Unas is of such interest and importance 
that it is given in the appendix to this chapter, with interlinear translation and transliteration, and with the variant readings from the Pyramid of Teta. Still, the following general rendering of its contents may be useful. The sky poureth down rain, the stars tremble, the bow-bearers run about with hasty steps, the bones of Acre tremble, and those who are ministrants unto them betake themselves to flight when they see Una's rising in the heavens, like a god who lives upon his fathers and feedeth upon his mothers. Unas is the lord of wisdom, whose name his mother knoweth not. The noble estate of Unas is in heaven, and his strength in the horizon is like that of the god Turn his father. Indeed, he is stronger than his father who gave him birth. The doubles, Kau, of Unas, are behind him, and those whom he has conquered are beneath his feet. His gods are upon him, his Uriah are upon his brow, his serpent guide is before him, and his soul looketh upon the spirit of flame, the powers of Unas protect him. From this paragraph we see that Unas is declared to be the son of Turn, and has made himself stronger than his father, and that when the king, who lives upon his fathers and mothers, enters the sky as a god, all creation is smitten with terror. The sky dissolves in the rain, the stars shake in their places, even the bones of the great double lion-headed earth god Arca quake, and all the lesser powers of heaven flee in fear. He is considered to have been a mighty conqueror upon earth, for those whom he has vanquished are beneath his feet. There is no reason why this statement should not be taken literally, and not as referring to the mere P, pictures of enemies, which were sometimes painted on the cartonage coverings of mummies under the feet, upon the sandals of mummies, and upon the outside of the feet of coffins. An ordinary man possessed one leer, or double, but a king or a god was believed to possess many cow, or doubles. Thus in one text, the god Ra is said to possess seven souls, bao, and fourteen doubles, el cow, and prayers were addressed to each soul and double of Ra, as well as to the god himself. And elsewhere we are told that the fourteen days of Ra were given to him by Thoth. Arnaz appears in heaven with his gods upon him, the serpents are on his brow, he is led by a serpent guide and endowed with his powers. It is difficult to say what the gods here referred to really are, for it is unlikely that the allusion is to the small figures of gods which, in later times, were laid upon the bodies of the dead. And it seems that we are to understand that he, Unas, was accompanied by several divine beings who had laid their protecting strength upon him. The Uriai on his brow and his serpent guide were the emblems of similar beings whose help he had sought. In other words, they represented spirits of serpents that were made friendly towards man. The passage in the text of Unas continues, Unas is the bull of heaven, which overcomes by his will, and which feedeth upon that which cometh into being from every god, and he eateth of the provender of those who fill themselves with words of power, and come from the lake of flame. Unas is provided with power sufficient to resist his spirits, Ku, and he riseth in heaven like a mighty god who is the lord of the seat of the hand, that is, power, of the gods. He takes his seat, and his back is towards Seb. Unas weighs his speech with the god, whose name is hidden on the day of slaughtering the oldest gods. Unas is the master of the offering, and he ties the knot and provides meals for himself. He eats men, and he lives upon gods. He is the lord of offerings, and he keeps account of the lists of the same. The dead king is next likened to a young and vigorous bull that feeds upon what is produced by every god, and upon those that come from the fiery lake to eat words of power. Here we have a survival of the old worship of the bull, 
which began in the earliest times in Egypt and lasted until the Roman period. His food is that which is produced by every god, and when we remember that the Egyptians believed that every object, animate and inanimate, was the habitation of a spirit or god, it is easy to see that the allusion in these words is to the green herbage which the bull ordinarily eats, for from this point of view every blade of grass was the abode of a god. In connection with this may be quoted the words of Sankon Yathan, the Sancho Niatho of the Greeks, as given by Eusebius, who says, But these first men consecrated the productions of the earth, and judged them gods, and worshipped those things, upon which they lived, and all their posterity, and all before them. To these they made libations and sacrifices. Now the food of this bull Unas is also said to be those who came from the lake of fire, or the city of Shesasa, and who are these? From chapter 18 of the Book of the Dead, we learn that Shisasa was situated in Seketsasa, that is, a district in heaven, and it is clear from the text of the chapter that it was one of the abodes wherein the beatified dead obtained food. The deceased is made to say, I have not lain down in death, I have stood over you, and I have risen like a god, I have cackled like a goose, and I have alighted like the hawk by the divine clouds and by the great dew. I have come from Shesasa, which is in Seketsasa, that is, the lake of fire, which is in the field of fire. Towards the end of the chapter, line 10, mention is made of herbage or crops, and it seems as if these grew in the field of fire or in the neighbourhood of it, and it must be these that are referred to as the provender of those from the lake of fire. Vivet is next told that Unas hath power sufficient to oppose or resist his spirits, Ulchu, but it is not certain whether these are beings in the underworld that are hostile to him, or spirits that belong to him. In any case, the passage's meaning is unclear. Having risen in heaven, Unas sits with his back towards Seb, the great earth god represented by the mythological goose, which was supposed to have laid the great cosmic egg. In the latter part of the section of the text of Unas quoted above, we have some remarkable ideas enunciated. It is asserted first of all that he weigheth his speech with the god whose name is hidden, which indicates that Unas was supposed to be of equal rank and power with the god of judgment. From the Theban recensions of the Book of the Dead, we know that the expression weighing of words also means the weighing of actions, and that it is applied to the examination of the deceased, which is held on the day wherein his heart is weighed in the great scales. The examination was conducted by Thoth on behalf of Osiris, but the words in the text of Unas show that the dead king considers himself able to judge his actions and award himself happiness. The god of the hidden name is probably Osiris. Finally, it is said that Unas eats men and feeds on the gods. The statement here that Unas educated men are definite enough, and it is not easy to give any other than a literal meaning to the words. We can only assume then that this portion of the text has reference to some acts of cannibalism of which a tradition had come down from pre-dynastic to dynastic times. You can gather from other passages in the texts of Unas and Teta what manner of treatment was meted out to the vanquished in battle by the victors, and it seems to find a parallel in the atrocious acts that were, and in some places still are, perpetrated by conquering tribes of Central Africa after a battle. In pre-dynastic times, the successful warriors seized all the property of those defeated in the war, and all the women fell into their hands. At times, nameless abominations were committed upon the unfortunate male captives. 
The dead king in the texts of Unas and Teta is naturally described as the Lord of Heaven, and of all the beings and things which are therein. As such, he is master of all the women, and it is said plainly of him that he is the fecundator, and that he carries off the women from their husbands to whatever place he pleased, whensoever he pleased. Thus, one of his attributes was that of the bull, which, because of his fecundity and strength, became the object of worship by the early Egyptians, and he exercised the rights of a victorious tribal chief. Upon the conquered men who were allowed to live, terrible indignities were perpetrated, and in the text of Teta, the dead king is exhorted to rise up, for Horus hath caused Thoth to bring unto thee thine enemy, and he, that is Horus, hath put thee behind him in order, that he may not do thee an injury, and that thou mayest make thy place upon him, so that when thou goest forth, and it is possible then that in pre-dynastic times, in addition to the wanton destruction that the Egyptians brought about after a victorious fight with their enemies, and the slaughter, rapine, and nameless abominations that followed, they sometimes imitated the example of wild and savage beasts, and ate the foes they had conquered. The accounts of the battles of dynastic times show that the Egyptians looted and destroyed the cities and towns of the vanquished, cut down orchards and gardens, and carried off all the flocks and herds they could find. There is abundant proof that they mutilated the bodies of their dead foes after a fight, but that they either ate them or behaved towards them in a manner contrary to nature, there is absolutely no evidence to show. We now have to consider the remaining paragraphs of the extract from the text of Unas. The gods upon whose bodies Unas fed were snared by Amke, and they were examined as to their fitness and condition by Chesar Tep F, a divine being who was in later times one of the forty-two judges in the Hall of Marti, and is mentioned in the negative confession of the Bool of the Dead. The gods were next bound by Fertertu, and the god Kensu cut their throats and took out their intestines. A being called Shesemu acted as a butcher and cut them up and cooked the pieces in his fiery cauldrons. Thereupon Unas ate them, and in eating them he also ate their words of power and spirits. The largest and finest of the gods he ate at daybreak, the smaller ones for meals at sunset, and the smallest for his meals at night. The old and worn-out gods he rejected entirely and used as fuel in his furnace. The cauldrons in which the bodies of the gods were cooked were heated by the Great One in heaven, who shot flame under those that contained the thighs of the oldest of the gods, and the Pera, who is in heaven, of Unas also cast into cauldrons the thighs of their women. Unas is then said to journey about every part of the double sky or heaven, that is, the night sky and the day sky, and also to travel about presumably from one end to the other through the two gates of Egypt, that is, the land between the mountains and the Nile on each side of the river. As a result of eating the bodies of the gods, Unas becomes the great Sekem, the Sekem of the Sekemu. He also becomes the Ashim of Ashim, the great Ashim of the Ashemu. The power that protects Unas and that he possesses is greater than that of all the Samu in the heavens, and he becomes the eldest of all the firstborn gods, and he goes before thousands and makes offerings to hundreds of them. Indeed, the power that has been given to him as the great Sekem makes him become the star Satyu, that is, Orion, with the gods. Unas can repeat his rising in the sky, for he is the Saban crown as lord of the heavens. He takes count of the knots, or sinews, and of livers, and he hath taken possession of the hearts of the gods. He hath eaten the red crown, he hath eaten the white crown, 
and he feedeth upon fat entrails. The offerings made to him are those in whose hearts live words of power. What the red crown emitted was that he hath eaten, and he flourished. The words of power are in his belly, and his saffew is not turned away from him. He hath eaten the knowledge of every god, and his existence and the duration of his life are eternal and everlasting in any samu which he is pleased to make. He shall never do whatever he hateth within the limits or inside the borders of heaven. Behold, their soul, that is, the soul of the gods, is in Unas, and their spirits are with him. His food is more abundant than that of the gods, in whose bones is the flame of Unas. Behold, their soul is with Unas, and their shadows are with their forms or attributes. Unas is in, or with, the doubly hidden car gods, as a Sekem, and having performed all the ordinances of the ceremony of ploughing, the seat of the heart of Unas shall be among the living upon this earth for ever and ever. The last portion of the extract is of particular interest, because it affords some insight into the beliefs the Egyptians held about the constituent parts of the economy of the gods. We have already seen that a bar or soul has been assigned to Unas and Kau or doubles and Ulchu or spirits and a Salyu and a Selkim. The last two words are difficult to translate, but they are rendered with approximate correctness by spiritual body and power. The soul was intimately connected with the heart and was supposed to be gratified by offerings which it was able to consume. The double was an integral part of a man, was connected with his shadow, and came into being when he was born and lived in the tomb with the body after death. The spirit was the seat of the spiritual part of man, and gods and divine personages were credited with the possession of several spirits. The Salmu, or spiritual body, was the ethereal, intangible, transparent and translucent body, which was supposed, in dynastic times at all events, to grow from the dead body, the form of which it preserved. The Selkum was the power which seems to have animated the skin and to have made it irresistible. From the extract given above from the text of Unas, we learn that the gods were composed of all these various parts, and that in fact their economy resembled that of man, in other words, the Egyptians made their gods in their own image, only they attributed to them superhuman powers. The gods, however, preserved their existence by employing magical protection, which they enjoyed, Melchet and Elkau, commonly translated as words of power. The aim of every Egyptian was to obtain possession of both magical protection and the words of power, for they thought that if they once were masters of these, they could live like the gods. In the earliest times in Egypt, men thought that the only way to obtain the strength and immortality of the gods was to eat the gods themselves, and so we read that Unas, having eaten parts of the boiled bodies of the gods, hath eaten their words of power, elect, and swallowed their spirits, Ulchu. As a result, he becomes the great power, the power of powers, that is, the greatest power in heaven. He also becomes the Ashim of Ashim, the great Ashim of the Ashimu, that is to say, the very essence of Ashim, and the greatest powers of the Ashimu beings are enshrined within him, because he has within him the spirits and the words of the power of the gods. But what is the meaning of Ashim? In the text of Teta, the word has for its determinative hawk perched upon a standard, which shows that it has some meaning connected with deity or divinity. Still, it cannot only be the name of one divine being, for we find it in the plural form Ashemu. The determinative, however, does not help us very much, 
for it proves little more than that some attribute of the hawk god Fleru was ascribed to the Ashemu. The hawk was undoubtedly the first creature worshipped by the pre-dynastic Egyptians and became, in consequence, the common determinative of all words implying the idea of deity or divinity and of the proper names of the gods in a very large number of passages in the hieroglyphic texts inscribed on the walls of the chambers and corridors in the pyramids at Saqqara. The common name for God, as we have already seen, is more net, J, or with the plural Netaru, or that the male gods are sometimes called hawks, even when the female gods are called Netert. In the Book of the Dead, the word Ashemu is written, which may be translated as divine Ashemu, and as the first determinative is a squatting hawk, we may assume that the word Ashemu means hawks. If this assumption is correct, Ashem of Ashem, great Ashem of the Ashemu, means hawk of hawk, the great hawk of the hawks. And since the hawk was not only a god to the pre-dynastic Egyptians, but their oldest and greatest god, being in fact the spirit of that which is above, that is heaven, the passage Ashem of Ashem, great Ashem of the Ashemu, may very well be God of God, great God of the gods. Thus, with the words of power and the spirits of the gods in him, Unas becomes the habitation of the power of God and the firstborn of the gods. He can now go round about heaven at pleasure, and as the great Sekum or power, his visible emblem is Sart or Orion, and he can repeat his rising daily in heaven like this constellation. It is not improbable that the identification of Orion with kings who had eaten the gods filtered down in tradition to the Semitic people who lived in the Delta in dynastic times, and so became the basis of the legends about Orion, which are found among the Arabs and Hebrews. Modern travellers have put on record the fact that certain savage and semi-savage peoples were, even in recent times, in the habit of eating pieces of flesh from mighty wild animals or strong men and drinking their blood with the view of absorbing their nature, life and strength into their own bodies. This idea also existed among the Egyptians, both pre-dynastic and dynastic, and we find an allusion to it in the extract from Unas under consideration, for he is said to take possession of the hearts of the gods, to reckon up the Thesel and Bekesu, and to feed upon fat Smau. The importance that the Egyptians attached to possessing the physical heart, or having power over it, is proved by many texts, especially by several chapters of the Bool of the Dead, wherein we find many prayers specially written for the protection of the heart. Thus, in chapter 16, the deceased prays, May my heart be to me in the house of hearts, and may my Iati be to me in the house of Artu. Chapters were written to prevent the heart being carried away by those who steal hearts, composed to prevent its death in the underworld, and were intended to prevent a man's heart from being driven away from him there, especially at the time of the judgment, when it was weighed in the great scales. The words Thesu, Bekesu, and Sniao take work to find equivalents. From the connection in which it occurs, this must mean either the vertebra or some internal organ of the body that resembles a tied or knotted cord, while, of course, the determinative proves that it is also an internal organ. Despite this, however, it seems as if the word actually means liver. Mr. Fraser has quoted in his work instances that savage tribes look upon the liver as the seat of the soul or life of man, and that portions of it are eaten by them to acquire the qualities of the former possessor of the liver. The words of the text of Unas do not say definitively that the king ate the thesu and livers of the gods who had been killed for him, 
but it is evident from the context that they were supposed to form part of his food. On the other hand, it is said definitely that he did eat their fat entrails and their hearts, or those portions of them that were the seats of the Ikau, or words of magical power, which were the source of their life. Now besides the spirits, the words of power and the internal organs of the gods, Unas, it is said, has eaten the knowledge of every god. The period of his life and his existence is merged into eternity and everlastingness, which he may pass in any way that pleases his spiritual body, say. And during this existence, he has no need whatsoever to do anything distasteful to him. Moreover, the souls and spirits of the gods are in and with Unas, and their souls, shadows and divine forms are with him, Thus we see that Unas has absorbed within his spiritual body all the life and power of the gods, and his portion is everlasting, and he can do anything and everything he pleases. Here we should naturally expect the section to come to an end, but the last sentence goes on to say that Unas is with the double car god, who is invisible or unknown, and that is a power, Selkan, who hath performed the ceremony of ploughing, the seat of the heart of Unas, shall be among those who live upon this earth forever and forever. In this sentence we illustrate the difficulty of understanding and explaining the Egyptian religion and the God's doctrine. In the early portion of the passage from the text of Unas, already translated and analysed, we are told how the dead king became the God of God, immortal and invisible, with supreme power in heaven, etc. Still, at the end of it, we read that the seat of the heart of Unas shall be among those who live upon this earth forever and ever. That is, Unas shall enjoy after death a continuation of the life which he began in this world. In fact, he shall have a double existence, the one heavenly and the other earthly.